0: Welcome to the Forest Educator Podcast. I'm Ricardo Sierra. Well, I'm here with Jessica Carew-Craft, and you're the author of the Why We Need to Be Wild book, which is eminently being released in conjunction with this podcast episode. So congratulations. That's right.
1: Thank you. Thank you yeah. so much. Just really happy to be here and talk to your folks and
0: yeah, have some time with you. Yeah, absolutely. I I haven't read all of your all of your book yet, but I really enjoyed your um some of the principles you kind of laid out in the very beginning of your book and then also just hearing some of your stories of your adventures, especially the one with the uh roadkill fox which uh I can relate to. Mm. You know, picking up roadkill especially in a state along a freeway. Pretty intense, but but one that's shared by many many uh, educators and wilderness people all over the world. So
1: <laughs> it's fun to talk to people who don't think that that's a complete gross out, right? Like yeah. it's one of those sort of taboo topics that if you talk to anybody who isn't familiar with it, it's like, wow, that is really out there. But the thing is, is right, like you're saying, there's thousands of folks who knows how many people who are harvesting off of the roadsides. And, you know, it's really doing everybody a service because it's honoring the life of the animal whose life was taken uh, because of our way too fast moving culture. Right. That prioritizes industry and transport over wildlife. And then it's also giving people uh, fresh, organic, wild meat. If it's, you know, in good condition. And then if it isn't, there's still lots of other parts of the animal that can be used. So yeah, I'm all for it. And had a lot of adventures with roadkill. Yeah, but it's but it's one of those things. It's gonna take the culture a while to kind of wrap their heads around it.
0: Yeah, no, that's really true. Everything you're saying. And I, I know a lot of times too, when animals get struck on on the road, oftentimes other animals come in to eat that, then they get hit, and then it's just like this sort of ongoing cycle. And, and it kind of goes hand to hand with people throwing food out their window and they go, Oh, it's organic. So it'll, it'll decompose. And then, you know, Mm -hmm. that's, that's why, that's why opossums and skunks and raccoons and everything, the, the, the omnivores, you know, they kind of cruise along the road looking for food that people drop and then they get hit. So I always tell people like, preferably don't throw your food out the window on a way, you know, just because like, you think you're doing a favor, but you're really, really not. You could be sign in the death warrant to a lot of animals. But yeah, no, you you wrote this book and it's it's launching now, which is really exciting. And I'm I'm really curious about your story of where how you got started and what led you to write this book and anything you can tell me about where you where you grew up or you know what got you moving in this direction.
1: The whole story. Well yeah. I <laughs> grew up you with like a profound <laughs> A a profound respect for nature, but it was very much from the groomed trail, you know, so I lived in the suburbs of Ohio, right near, I was lucky to live near a metro park called Inniswood, which, you know, we went to all the time, several times a week, but it was always on this sort of boardwalk path and never actually touching the plants or engaging with the animals, uh, never camping. So my, my view of nature was like, awe and respect and beauty, but nothing that I had actually dipped into and, you know, felt from my full body. And then, you know, I, I, as a, as a student, I studied anthropology. I was super interested in other cultures and always having a critique of our Western industrial educated uh, democratic culture, because it seemed to me that we were incredibly deviant from the rest of the world. In the fact that we were so dependent on industrial systems and we didn't have uh, a direct relationship with nature for any of our basic needs, like everything had to be mediated by corporations, etc. So I was always critical of that. It wasn't until I encountered some advocates of rewilding through various podcasts and books that I realized Kind of made that connection between how other cultures live and specifically the cultures of hunter gatherers across the world and our incredible separation and disconnect from the natural world. And then how to um, remedy that by, you know, me being a Western industrial dependent domesticated person engaging with nature and thereby releasing myself from dependency. And it came about because I, um, after college, I became a journalist and an academic and then I was living in San Francisco and it, it was at a time, you know, it, it's that way now, but it was an incredible real estate bubble and my husband at the time and I wanted to buy a house and so I was like, okay, well, how can I make money with these skills I have? I'm going to become a tech consultant and advise CEOs and venture capitalists about their content and you know, writing posts for them and white papers and such, helping prep them for interviews. What I kept hearing from them just did not make any sense to me. It was like, tech is going to save the world. All we need is a killer app and we can solve everything from how to get food to your door faster uh, to climate change, right? But I wasn't seeing uh, those effects happening and everybody around me was so stressed out, so overwhelmed getting all sorts of metabolic syndrome diseases, you know, people in their lives dying of terrible things. And I was like, wait a second, this doesn't equate. And as I looked further and went back into my anthropological background, I was like, whoa, we are living in a way that is so crazy, so off track from our evolutionary blueprint and from the way that our ancestors, our ancient ancestors and contemporary hunter-gatherers live. And there were a lot of people looking at this, actually, kind of under the radar, not not mainstream information. But as I explored it, I was like, oh, there's this whole world of rewilding, of getting our lifestyle back in alignment with our evolutionary heritage. And so that just opened up a pathway for me. And I started engaging with lots of practitioners of Paleolithic skills, people who are pretty much getting most of their daily needs satisfied directly from nature. Even though they're Western-educated, industrialized people, they've made this choice because of their own ethics or because it's just fun and badass, (laughs) as we all know, forest educators, and spent a lot of time at wilderness skills, schools, as well as primitive skills, or people like to call it ancestral skills gatherings and spend time interviewing artisans and wild tenders and hide tanners and flint knappers, and just trying to engage these skills myself. And through doing that, I became healthier, happier, and definitely more inspired to live life in this time when we're facing so many kind of catastrophic possible consequences from our human actions, right? So everything from climate change to our mental health crises to environmental destruction, everything, I became so much more hopeful about it once I saw like, oh, humans really can realign back with nature. And I felt very compelled to write a book about my story, about the people I met, and ground it all in anthropology, archaeology, ecology, and sort of evolutionary science so that it would really convince folks that this isn't a crazy idea. We don't all need to become hunter-gatherers again, and there's no possibility of that. We just don't have the landmass. But- if some people do, and if some of us learn some of these skills, in the immediate term, we can become healthier, happier, have better social connections, you know, avoid all of this alienation. And then secondly, we have more of a shot of making it in the future, past the possible catastrophic impacts of climate change, right? So every single civilization before us has collapsed Sorry to break it to people, but I mean, I think we all know that. Like we've we've studied history. We know this and we know that our civilization is heading for a possible collapse sometime soon in the grand scope of history. 100 years, 200 years, 1,000 years, but it's coming. And the way that humanity has survived in between those in-between times is by reverting to foraging strategies. So not being dependent on anybody else for all of our basic needs. So, and it's not just me saying this, it's tons of experts, even economists saying, okay, our, our future could very well be one of hunter gatherer sort of hybrid. Yeah. That was long winded, but that's the book. <laughs> and, yeah, and it totally. ends with my, my personal story and how I left, left the tech world, left the Bay area and kind of found my own niche here in the Sierra foothills uh, with a new neighborhood community that I'm really thriving, which is, which is a great end of the story.
0: Wow. That's awesome yeah, you really shared a lot about, you know, just your journey, but really, you know, just backing it up as well with this whole, there's like a whole history of like academic research behind everything you've been sharing. So that's pretty impressive. So one thing I was curious about when I was reading your book a little bit was just thinking about everything that you just shared being sort of a, intellectual understanding of history and anthropology and cultures and everything else. Um, What were some of the direct experiences like um, when you actually did get to start doing some of these skills, you know, instead of being on the boardwalk at that little park? Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, one of the most important things was that uh, a lot of times I had my two daughters with me. Mm -hmm. And so my perspective was that of a mother and looking at the kind of landscape of childhood and seeing how that was being overtaken by screens and plastic and sugar and all these things that, you know, weren't, weren't healthy for my kids and really fearing that, oh, God, their future could be even more disconnected than mine was from nature. And so it became really important to bring them along. So you were talking about the the episode of Roadkill, but like I opened the book with my kids and I emerging from this ancestral skills gathering in Southern California called ACORN where we had sampled tons of those skills made baskets ground acorns made some sandals out of buckskin leather we had you know practiced archery and that sort of stuff like so seeing the thrill of learning these skills and connecting with nature that my kids had and their enthusiasm for it and the fact that they weren't as grossed out by things like hide tanning <laughs> taking right. road kills, skinning animals was like, "Oh, wow. They, they this could really be something that they take with them in the future." So having my kids along really motivated me, right? Yeah, to yeah. do it fully and do it in a way where I could teach and then guide them to learn some of these skills. And I would say what we really took to primarily was foraging because mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. I mean, that is the fundamental human skill if there is one. It's going out in your environment and looking for food, edibles, things you can use. So that's something we've been practicing for like five or six years now, just on all of our walks, all of our hikes, all of our camping trips, excursions, and I do it almost every day. Go out there and just see what I can find, even if it's a little nibble off a fir tree, even if it's just a tiny little manzanita berry, just getting some wild food to satisfy that uh, reward cycle of seeking, seeking, and then dopamine hit, I got the food that I needed. Right. And um, and I, I really like that because it is a direct replacement for the dopamine hits that we're all seeking when we're online and when we're checking our email, checking TikTok, that kind of thing. And I think foraging is an awesome, healthy, tasty supplement. I mean, they're, they're same the kind of phenomenon in your brain.
0: Mm-hmm. It was interesting. Um, I interviewed Susan Weed about seven years ago, who's an herbalist and, and knows a tremendous amount about plants. And she recommended that everybody go outside if they can in the morning and just sample one wild edible because they said that some of the enzymes in that in and some of the you know uh, molecules in those in that food kind of like sets up your digestive system to be optimal because of the way it, mm. it your your body gets these signals so uh, I always love thought that, that was really interesting so I think that doing it as a in a daily daily way if you can is really a wonderful thing to to develop for sure.
1: Yeah. And it's a deep, it's a deep practice of integrating with your environment, mm-hmm. right? So you're, you're taking in from exactly where you live, which is not what most of us do. We take in the food that's from 1500 miles away and fried and seed oils and all that sort of thing. So it, it really is so great for your body. And I think that's, that's really true, especially in the spring, if you could sample some bitter herbs, mm-hmm. which you know, don't have to be terribly bitter, but that absolutely stimulates your digestion, gets everything going in a healthy way. And then of course, just being outside first thing in the morning sets your circadian rhythm, you know, gets your pineal Mm -hmm. gland set to produce the melatonin later, later, getting that sunlight, vitamin D. I mean, there's nothing bad about that. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Everybody should.
0: Yeah. No, that's true. That's really true. And, and it's great that you're doing it with, with your, your daughters and being able to just give them that experience that they're you know this is just n- normal this is what they do and they'll have that memory they'll they'll have that understanding for their whole life so that's a that's a really wonderful gift to give them so awesome
1: yeah thank you and i i think it's about the challenges too the physical challenges the doing it when you don't want to do it also giving them opportunities to stretch their their physical boundaries. I love, I mean, it's not like I take them on harrowing adventures all the time, but I think every once in a while we're going to scale that cliff above the river. We're going to cross this log and not know if we're going to fall in. And those kind of, we call them hormetic challenges, right? Like that positive stress. So good for them. So good at getting them to build confidence, conquer their fear. I really believe kids today most of them do not have that skill of challenging challenging themselves in outdoor environments right so when we go on nature walks and we, we see other kids they're not playing they're not adventuring they're not challenging themselves to climb the tree to go seek that turtle that's out on the pond uh even to like dip their toes into the ocean it's like they're they're just so uh accustomed to feeling comfortable and you know just sort of being sedentary that taking up those challenges is just like unthinkable and parents too so i also like to be out there setting an example of like okay no moms can play with their kids we can all be adventurous together and we'll reap the benefits of all these challenges
0: yeah yeah absolutely that's really true um i i went through uh, an after school season where for the entire autumn season i came in i went to i think 12 or 13, uh, local schools. I went to each school like six times and I presented all these like wilderness skills, nature programs. I told lots of stories about, you know, animals and everything. And when I looked back, um, I started kind of keeping track on every time I do a program, did any, any of the children ask me a question Mm. that was, Mm. that was like a, a real question, not not like Mr. Sierra can I have more beads or <laughs> Sierra can I go to the bathroom but but an actual like independent question and it was it was kind of crazy but there was I don't know I was I was around about four three hundred three or four hundred kids and not one time during that entire mm-hmm. season did anyone ask me like hey where are you from or what was your wilderness experience or, Tell me about the animals in your area. Like, they waited. They would. They were very, very passive, and they just wanted to do their thing, whatever the craft was, and they had no curiosity. They were really absorbed mm. in their own world. And mm. I'm not. I'm not saying that these students are bad or anything, but it was just really interesting to me because they had. They had zero curiosity beyond whatever was mm. whatever was going on through their brain. So, really, really kind of scary in a way.
1: Yeah. And, and disappointing, but not uncorrectable. Yeah, I think yeah. it's, it is possible to in, ignite that curiosity. And especially, you know, one of the things that I found was that learning the skills of wilderness tracking got people very curious, got me really curious, learning to ask a series of questions about what you're observing in the environment.
0: A hundred percent. Right. Yeah. And
1: then and practicing that regularly so that it's sort of automatic. Once you go outside and you start seeing things, start asking questions. The wall of green melts away, and you start distinguishing different species. And then, I mean that, and that's that's true now. Like I think that's one of the gifts I've gotten through this rewilding process is just I can be so entertained, right, in a sit spot, in just right. going outside, sitting, observing, asking question after question. Those lead to more. It's I stop asking, yeah. so. Yeah, I think it's correctable cuz cuz I did it at 40 years old. So these people can do it at 8 and 10 and 12.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you don't if you don't get pushed to do it at a young age then it just doesn't it's like a muscle that you just don't quite use that much. So it you just have to use it or have a have a need to use it really. So, yeah, absolutely. So, let me ask you, you went to that gathering. Was there what other types of gatherings did you go to or what other programs did you attend? In your quest mm-hmm. for knowledge, I, I'm really curious because it's so interesting to have. You know, oftentimes when someone writes a book, it's because they have been doing wilderness survival for 20 years, or someone's been doing tracking for 20 years, uh someone has learned all about wild edible plants for 20, you know, 30 years, whatever it mm-hmm. is. And and so, but when we get when I get your story, I'm getting somebody who. Who is getting these experiences right now, and and you're able to share a view of of people's programs that we don't get because usually you just see the the website or the brochure or the, you know, the YouTube channel where you know everything's edited and curated. So it's really the marketing yeah. promo, yeah.
1: Yeah, and,
0: and there's nothing wrong with that, but it is nice to get kind of behind the curtain a little bit and get your perspective. So I, I really value your insights are really important. I think especially to people who are wilderness educators, nature educators, because I think it helps us to understand who we're working with and what their experience is.
1: Yeah. Oh, I appreciate that question so much. Um, because it was a sort of haphazard journey. You know, I didn't, I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go and review the wilderness skills and ancestral skills gatherings. It was just like one thing led to another and I was uh prompted by various people I respected to go and try different programs. But the first thing I did was to become a California naturalist. And that entailed taking a 10-week course, uh, you know, and it was very much in the sort of standard science model of education that we have today. So inside a natural history museum classroom with PowerPoint presentations and uh, climate control, fluorescent lighting, the whole thing. And then field trips with that as well, where we we're introduced to kind of most of the common plants and animals that we might find in the region of the East Bay where I was taking the course and some basic ecological theories, some um, ind- traditional indigenous knowledge uh, training and just, to, you know, familiarity so that we would feel comfortable then bringing other folks out into natural spaces. And I really enjoyed that and I got super geeked out on taxonomy and just, Loved learning about everything that I was seeing and what I got super interested in was was the indigenous aspect of it so what were the native people eating and surviving off of on this land and there really wasn't that much content in that course about that and so that led to me engaging with some indigenous local still on the land harvesting things uh, doing ceremonies and rituals and who you know were extremely generous with explaining their traditions to me and you know and then I had to kind of navigate that relationship of being uh, a white, settler colonialist on uh, right. stolen land, but also wanting to engage the land in the way that their ancestors had. And that if you pull the curtain way or if you, you take the timeline way back, all of us engaged land that way because we're all right. the ancestors of hunter-gatherers. So after the naturalist program, I, well, I did a story on Trackers Bay, which is the San Francisco Bay and Portland area wilderness skills program, kind of the biggest one educating kids in uh, everything from friction fire to blacksmithing. And I was able to observe a bunch of homeschool groups and kids groups and was just totally wowed by the competence that these kids had with, right, like like igniting a spark, working with knives, foraging different things to eat for lunch, throwing axes. I mean, the things they were doing were so alien to my conception of what five, six, seven, eight-year-olds should be doing. That um that I was just like wow I need to know a lot more about this, so then I went on and I did my own wilderness survival program with the Wilderness Awareness School in Duval, Washington. Right, right. And yeah, had a wonderful week up there. You know, a different ecosystem than what I was used to, but that was helpful to learn their edible plants and their uh, native traditions, and then of course the basics of survival. So the the fire, the shelter, the finding food and water and living in community with, with folks without a lot of comforts and conveniences, um, had some issues with that program. And I know a lot of the wilderness programs are kind of conducted in the same way where they don't give their participants a lot of information. And, uh, to be, to be honest, that was, that was a little disconcerting for me, not, not just because I'm, you know, kind of type a or whatever, but, but because of, uh, that my family history and being Jewish and sort of being in a situation of vulnerability where people aren't giving me information and then, you know, kind of made even more emotionally sensitive because we weren't eating that much. It was like, whoa, I'm not I sure trust. this is the best way to do this. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so-
1: so I have I have some writing to do about that and some reflection, but overall a great program. And then I started going to these ancestral skills gatherings. So went to probably half a dozen over a couple of years and then um, have interviewed a lot of the directors and participants at other ones and just so impressed by these organizations, super scrappy, no budget, people who are so committed to reviving ancient skills. I mean, to the point where, they're looking in anthropology manual or anthropology ethnographies to find out oh what can we do with a goat stomach nobody's been doing anything with goat stomachs for the last 50 years 100 years so what did people do with them before and then reviving those skills you know it, there's a there's just a wealth of information that that people are kind of turning to because either native groups aren't practicing it our western education system isn't teaching it and so there's a lot of like experimental work that has to be done. And, and then these, these gatherings bring folks together for a period of like five to seven days, and they set up what is functionally like a hunter-gatherer village. Everybody living together, everybody eating together, a lot time eating um, wild harvested food, and then spending the day doing all of those crafts and skills and, and learning those things to take them back to their daily lives. All in the absence of any digital technology and no air conditioning, sometimes no propane, just firewood. Uh, so it's it's a wonderful time to have that kind of detox and then gain this wealth of knowledge from all these practitioners. So I yeah. love those. Always recommend those to people because they're so eye-opening and they're so wonderful to bring families to. You know, it does take some getting used to if if your life hasn't been revolving around camping or being in the outdoors because it is sort of rough living. You're you're uh, going to latrines, you're pooping in the woods, that kind of thing. Yeah. But but so much fun. Yeah, right. and so healthy.
0: Yeah, it's definitely it definitely probably could be a a rough road if you're not experienced like you just said, but what's interesting about those gatherings is that they they really do bring together a lot of really wonderful educators so you get to also sample probably experiences with different teachers or mentors that you could then study further with down the road if you wanted to as well so that's there's a real advantage to that too i would imagine right
1: yeah, exactly. You can you can pursue further lessons and uh, practice on your own at home, and then a lot of the teachers at those things are kind of on a circuit, so going to the to the gatherings throughout the year. So you can kind of maintain a relationship, and that's what I found was like I would make friends at one gathering, see them at the next one, stay in touch, visit each other. It's it's very good for growing your wild
0: community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, that's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, what I, what but, I what you know
1: yeah. Oh, sorry. I just wanted to acknowledge that everything that I just talked about, right, is a function of privilege. I mean, I had to pay for these experiences, you know, so so I'm extremely grateful and lucky that I was able to take time off from work, fund these investigations, but it was super important to me that I write about them and let people know, and then also support folks going who don't have the same resources. Um, So many of those primitive skills gatherings do partnerships and lower cost work trade, that sort of thing. And I think it's so important that it not remain the domain of the privileged uh, because this is everybody's birthright. Everybody, um, you know, ancestrally, this is, this is our heritage that we all need access to.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. It's, that it's really interesting um, because there is that element of you know, when you start to learn about nature and wilderness skills, there are people that will say, hey, you know, all of these things should just be free, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. they were free at the same time, yeah. you know, like I ha- I paid a number of my teachers thousands of dollars over 10 or 15 years to learn yeah. skills, and then hone those, you know, I took time off from work. I did all these things. So on, on one hand, we have our commercial economy or, or the world we're living in. And then on the other side of it, if it was a traditional com- culture, then I it would totally be free. But yeah, uh, exactly. It, that's but, the paradox. But what's interesting about it is, is that people can kind of choose where they want to be in the, in the spectrum. Kind of like, uh, I, I like to say, it's kind of like pizza, right? So some people want to get pizza that's super cheap. You know, and they're mm-hmm. like, okay, I'm a college student. I want Domino's or whatever the cheapest possible pizza is because I just need to feed myself. And that's it. I'm not too picky. And then you have people that go, hey, we're going to make our own and we're all going to pitch in and put whatever we want it. And that's cool. And then you have, you know, the pizza that's a little bit more expensive. And then you have like the brick oven pizza where, you know, you're paying $28 for a pizza in a brick oven and and so people get to kind of pick and choose what the experience is or whatever and I like that they have now in many areas they they have like skill share groups where people mm-hmm. can go you know, and you can just sort of like hang out and share skills and and it, or, there doesn't have to be any money exchange too so um I always encourage people to you know donate time if they can to do that or um, you know, seek those out and see if you can find them and do that. Cause that's, that's one way to also just keep it a little bit more equitable, you know, just to help people out.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And and the crazy paradox of this time is that technology is so much more accessible than uh, learning mm-hmm. natural skills and learning about nature. But, it, you know, so I know a lot of people though, who have completely self-taught themselves through YouTube t- tutorials and doing online research and then, yeah. if you're if you're lucky to live in an area where there are lots of lots of natural spaces, those are free to right. go to. Your regional parks, your um, open spaces, and your BLM forest land, all of that is is pretty much free to go on. So I think it is possible for folks without many resources, if they're diligent and motivated enough, to get that kind of education for free.
0: Right, right, yeah. The internet's really been helpful that, for that because there just are so many different types of YouTube accounts and TikTok and, you know, just websites where they have resources. And, you know, so many people I know who do like buckskin and tanning, they have all kinds of free forums that you can ask. Yeah. Questions. So is a there is really a night, it's a nice way to kind of keep that, that all going. It's much, much easier now than it was, say, 30 years ago. That's for sure.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
0: Right. Yeah, but but at the same time, yeah, there is it, it. It can get really pricey to do programs as well. Like you said, it is something that not everyone can do. Everything, right? You know, even like flying to a class somewhere, you know, in Utah or New York or wherever people might go.
1: You know, one thing I encountered a, a several times was I met young men who had recently emerged from the military, and they were using the educational funding they got from the government basically to rewild and uh, you know the they they could use oh, wow. their educational stipend to do programs at like the wilderness awareness school or a boss in utah and i thought that was so cool it's like okay and they were already in sort of like a survival skills mindset having come from the military but then applying it in a completely different way right outside of civilization outside of industry outside of business and um, yeah, so I love that thought. That, well, this is also a great way for folks um, to, to get that education.
0: Right. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm just thinking, you know, like as your book is launching, um, is there, do you feel like you're going to move into this field uh, teaching more? Do you, I mean, obviously you're teaching just through your book and then also people probably wanting to hear hear about your book and hear about from you um is that something mm-hmm. that you are excited about doing i know you're probably doing a little bit of that already like you said with your daughters but um do you have, yeah. do you have plans <laughs>
1: Right. Yeah. Well, uh, one thing I forgot to mention was that when I took that California naturalist course, uh, there there was a, an opening for a teacher and instructor for that course. And so I taught it for a couple of years pre-pandemic, which was great. And oh, wow. I, I really enjoyed teaching, teaching folks to be naturalists and uh, running those field trips and just giving people that gift of a new perception. So I love that. And then each of my book events is tied with a natural area and a lot of times a skill So I'm hoping not just to do the traditional, let me read from my book and then I'll sign it. But the signing itself is this whole exploration of, I've made ink from oak galls, which is a very traditional way to make ink. Like the Declaration of Independence was signed with that. Um, And then I happened to find a cache of turkey feathers from a kill site in in an open space in the East Bay took those, made quills. And so the whole whole signing is sort of an education and we don't need industrial pens. Look at how we could possibly do this. And then um, some of them involve doing walks and teaching people the principles of natural navigation or learning some of the basic ideas about wilderness tracking, foraging, sampling edible stuff. Uh, And then I have one event that's all about blackberries because that's the season right now. And what's better than foraging and invasive uh, and making useful stuff out of it? I don't know. So I'm hoping that, that that kind of stuff will take off and I'll be able to do more of those events and um, and talks with people. It's just so enjoyable to turn people on to skills that they either haven't encountered or haven't had the time to to get into. So yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, You know, it really is interesting because your book is really about not just about like, I don't know, sometimes you hear these stories or books where it's just like, hey, everyone, we need to get connected to nature, you know, and it's Uh kind of like everyone, you know, you should be doing it and it's so much it's so good for you. And then there's like, okay, I know a lot of people that aren't connected to nature, maybe they're afraid. And they just go, well, I'm going to go out there and I'm just going to be standing like a jackass in the field. You know, I don't know what to do (laughs) standing here. Right. Okay. I took my Instagram photos, proved I was there. Now what do I do? Uh, And, and then at the same time, you know, people are maybe reluctant to like, say, I'm going to start foraging. Am I going to, can I do this? Can I get, am I going to get in trouble? Uh, You Mm -hmm. know, like every park has their own rules and then people's private land and whatever, Um. And so, what I love about like rewilding is that there's it's kind of a a combination of not just going out and sort of being out there, but also engaging and you know, using our senses, right? We did for a long time ago. So, we're not just like power walking through a park, but we're actually engaging a little bit more. Um, yeah, yeah, that's cool.
1: You know, and it's it's simple things like going barefoot on the earth. Uh, rewilding can also mean just operating different uh, in your in your social life, because really it goes back to how did humans live previously before agriculture and industry, and we know that we were always face to face in small nomadic groups. So even if somebody is is kind of nature averse, there are still ways to activate that hunter-gatherer consciousness that we all still have because our DNA is the same, our uh, physiology is the same, diet could be the same, and uh, you know if we if we make these adjustments in our social life, in our psychology to operate more in the immediate present, that's still a form of rewilding because you're getting you're getting back to how we evolved to exist. Um yeah. and then, you know, with it with engaging nature, yeah, it is. Oftentimes it becomes so spiritual. You once you open yourself up to observing and being quiet and looking at interrelationships between beings outside, you start to get messages. You start to understand harmony. Like so many people tell me plants and animals speak to them.
0: Right. Or
1: they have certain intuitions about something they'll find on the trail. Or, you know, recently I was I was hiking up a hill. I like to go off trail, by the way, like pretty much all the time. Um <laughs> I was I was off trail, you know, I was I was Coming up into this clearing, and I suddenly felt spooky. I was like, "What? This is strange." Right. Uh, right. Okay, I feel like I'm being watched. And I was looking around. I was like, "Nothing's here." Just calm yourself down. What is that? OCD, you know, (laughs) intrusive thought or something. Um, And then suddenly, this eagle alighted from the tree, like a brown brown eagle, off into off into the woods. And I was like, "Oh my god!" I completely felt that animal. Looking at me without even knowing that it was there. So, so it is this whole perceptual awakening that happens uh, once you start engaging, and I think that's really exciting because that also means that that's how we used to be. And when we, an anthropologist, go and observe uh, San Bushman or the Hadza, they see that they seem to be operating with an elevated consciousness of connection, of intuition, of even you know being able to communicate without words and to me that's ex- extremely exciting something that is definitely not accessible you have to you have to do the deep work of being outside and also engaging for a very long time to start stimulating that but um but that's like the frontiers of what it means to be human and understand things because our rational industrial uh kind of cartesian renaissance mind is like oh no all that's here is the observable world but but when you start engaging nature it's clear that there's more
0: but we just don't know what it is yeah yeah, I know that's true. That's really true. I, I know that what, what always seemed to happen in a lot of my programs, or in in programs where I was, you know, a student, is that you'd oftentimes get these like really amazing experiences that you can't explain. Like almost like right right out, right out of the gate, you have something that's just amazing that happens, and then it's almost like uh, nature or you know this human experience. Of it gives you a like a little bonus. It gives you a a, like a here's a gift just to know what's possible. And then, and then you might have to practice and go out there for like months and really be show that you're going to show up out there before you get it again in that way. And that's when you go, Oh, wow, that really was a special experience. And then, and then this slowly those things start to happen a little bit more often, or you start to see those experiences as almost like every day. But but it really yeah, does take a shift yeah. in consciousness, you know. And it, it's not always easy. It it can seem easy right in the beginning, just because there's a little bit of that magic. I think it's like the newcomer. You know, it's sort of like somebody going fishing, and they catch a the the new guy always catches catches the fish, right? He <laughs> doesn't know anything. Yeah, first timers. But yeah, no, it's really interesting. That's a whole nother subject like, you know, nature, spirituality or and stuff that's I haven't gotten into that yet with this uh, podcast. So uh, that'll be that's another topic in a way. But I like that you're bringing it up because most people I don't think really get why, like how good it feels to, you know, hold some a leather that you tanned or, you know, fibers that you've made something really special with or you've done, you know, natural ink or. Like, there's just this, like, it's like this extra thing. It's just not the same as grabbing a pen from target and going, Hey, I'll mm-hmm. say, right. Or whatever yeah. it is, you know, like, it's just not the same. And a lot of people think that it isn't, it isn't anything that big of a deal until they actually do it. And then they're like, what the, what, it, what is happening to me? <laughs> right. And yeah. It's really cool. Well, I'm excited. And the way, the way you. you have,
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. No, I was just going to say it, 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 um, erases that disposability bias that we have where it's like, okay, I'll use this thing for one time throw it out. I mean, you're definitely not going to do that if you put 20 hours into making something and they they become these cherished objects. So that's, that's a beautiful thing just to not have accumulated so much disposable crap, but rather have a few items that you spent a lot of time doing that mean a lot to you. I mean, I just,
0: I really value that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. A hundred percent yeah i think our our culture is really going to be changing you know it's probably not going to change due to climate change and so forth so um yeah it'll be interesting to see where it goes and i do think that rewilding has a really really important role to play for all these people that are practicing these skills and providing a just an example to show us how how we could live differently or I don't want to say better because it's like that gets subjective, but, but it's just really nice that they are willing to share their lives with us too. So that's really, yeah. really great. And I'm glad you shared your story in this because uh, this, I think there's a lot of people that probably are like, Hey, I wonder, I wonder why I should. And then just he, reading stories that you're sharing, I think will help people to say, Hey, I think I could do this too. So, right. Which is different in whatever way is possible, guide. yeah, yeah, right, 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 yep, right. If somebody just goes, mm-hmm. oh, I read a field guide, or oh, there's a, here's a how-to, uh, those things can be very intimidating to a lot of people, especially the people that are reluctant to ask questions and they're reluctant to engage. Like they're just always worried they're going to do it wrong. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Well, thank you so much for spending time. How can people get a hold of you and? uh let's see the the book is why we need to be wild and i'm really excited i'm really excited for you
1: thank you yeah so my website is just my full name jessica carewcraft.com and then i have an instagram account at why we need to be wild and i welcome uh interaction and engagement i i love to hear from folks and think about potential collaborations, whatever that might mean. So I'm open and ready to connect with folks. And thanks for this opportunity. It's great to talk to you. Great to uh, know about your audience and the work that you're doing. It's so, so vital and important today.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you. And uh, yeah, you're you're part of what making it happen. So uh, hearing voices like you is what I think is really important too. So Yeah. Hey, well, good luck with the launch and uh, we'll check in with you probably in a few months and see how it's going. Sounds
1: good. All right. Let's get outside now.
0: All right. (laughs) Thanks for listening to today's episode and for all the things that you do to help build a world that is connected to nature. You can get access to the bonus episodes